0: Let's read 18. 18 is a unique chapter in the book, and uh, we'll plow through it here. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having uh, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds, Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. In a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, pearls, in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. All shipments and uh, seafaring men, sailors and all those who make trade on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more and craftsmen of any kind will be found in you no more and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So that's a lot in chapter 18. Um, Let me give you the 30,000 foot view. And then we'll dig through this as best we can. Revelation 18 is John seeking to shake some sense into our heads about what we might have seen as harmless infatuation. He wants us to know if we refuse to come out of Babylon, if we refuse to give up our dalliances with the world, we're going to be destroyed with her. This is building on chapter 17, and this woman who's riding this beast, she's going to be judged, she's going to be destroyed, she's going to be cast down. Unless you think, oh, that's not that big of a deal, chapter 18 is saying to you, it's going to be thorough and complete, and if you don't come out from her, You're going to go down with her. That's the point of chapter 18. So uh, verse 1, 2, and 3. An angel announces Babylon's fall. Fall of Babylon described in language used by the Old Testament prophets. Again, I'm just telling you that you can go back and read these chapters and it sounds very, very similar to what John says here. He's recycling all the vocabulary. Uh, The fall of Babylon is described multiple times in Revelation. I'm just making this point again to you. Because one of the things, if nothing else, that you take away from this whole multi-month study is that Revelation circles back on itself over and over and over again. I'll be honest with you. This is the biggest challenge for me when I sit down and read the book because of how I was originally programmed to read it. My brain defaults to we're starting at this time and we're moving through a timeline and this happens next and next and next and next. And that's not how the book works. And so when you read here about the destruction of Babylon, I'm saying to you, you've already read about it in 14 and 16, and now again in 18. So he's given you multiple camera angles of the exact same thing, and you just got to keep that in your mind as you try to make sense of the book. Uh, one thing we've already said, but I want to say it again, the reference to immorality, fornication is... A way of describing idolatry. The prophets did this. Apocalyptic writers did this. When he talks about this immorality or this fornication, he's talking about idolatry. And Lad says that in that quote that I gave you here. Um, Let's talk about verse 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to skip over some of those quotes. The angel calls the saints to come out. This is an important part of chapter 18. Uh, The people of God are called to come out. This is not necessarily physical separation, but it is a call to personal holiness. So you see that in chapter 18, verse 4, this other voice says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is a call to holiness. The root idea of holiness is to be set apart. And so this messenger, this voice, is saying to the people of God, here's all the mess going on in Babylon. You've got to come out of that. And what I'm saying to you is that does not mean change your zip code. It might, in some instances, you might need to change a zip code. But that's not going to solve the, the whole issue here. The real call is to personal holiness, and we're going to circle back to that in a little bit. Uh, Wilson says it succinctly. To come out is not so much to have physical separation, but to be separate spiritually from Rome's sins. Uh, Notice the sins of Babylon have been heaped high as heaven. Quote, heaped high as heaven. And that reminds you of the Tower of Babel. It's the same kind of language used. Is that super insightful? No. But it's important for you understanding how John always pulls from the Old Testament. Okay? We're talking about Babylon. We're talking about God judging his enemies. And when he describes this final judgment here, he says, Their sins are heaped high as heaven. Same kind of wording used to describe this tower. That they're going to build a tower up to the heavens. And God brings it crashing down. It's the same images from Genesis and Jeremiah. Uh, the language of double. Let me say something about this, this stuff about double judgment. Um, it means that God's going to pub- punish Babylon thoroughly. It'll be a thorough punishment. So this is over in verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. If you take that super literal you kind of make God out into a jerk. Like not only is he going to punish them for what they've done, but he's just going to double it because he's extra mad. Like that's not, that's not justice. That's not righteousness. That's excessiveness and a temper tantrum and going over the top. But the image isn't meant to be taken literally, like an exact double punishment. It's just a poetic way, a prophetic way of saying God's going to punish all of it. Uh, one commentator I read even said that that business about double is almost like the idea of a duplicate, a double. Like this is what you've done. Make a double, a duplicate of it. God's going to get all of it accounted for. Not anything is going to be left out, so it's going to be thorough uh, in judgment. Verse 9 to 20, this is a long section. We're just going to summarize it quickly. There's two things you need to see in 9 to 20. Babylon's friends lament the people who made lots of money, the people who enjoyed the nice stuff, the people who liked the sexual immorality, the people who were profiting from all of it. They lament the fall of Babylon because they were enamored with her immorality and they were drunk on her wealth. Uh, If you want a biblical picture of what they're doing here, you can think about Lot's wife, the story of Lot's wife where they're called out of Sodom, Babylon, Rome, Sodom, Egypt. It's all the same ball of mess. And she's called out, and you can see in this painting, here she is looking back, right? It's not like God just turned her into a pillar of salt because she was curious of what's going on back there, and she looked back. The look back is looking back saying, oh, we had it made in Sodom. We had the good life in Sodom. I wish God didn't destroy all of that because we really had a good thing going. And as I was looking for these pictures of Lot's wife going back, I thought I'd share with you that one. Some people think that's her. That's an actual little tower thing you can go to in the Middle East. I don't think it's on our tour coming up in the fall, those of you who are going to the Holy Lands. But some people think that that tall, skinny one is actually her. So maybe you need to make a trip to see that. I don't know, but... uh, Lot's wife, she looked back and she lamented the destruction of Sodom. And that's what Babylon's friends are doing here. Alas, alas, oh, who was as great as Babylon? No one was as great and God's destroyed her in a single moment. He's just ruined all these good things we loved and we enjoyed. Contrast that with the response of the people of God. They don't lament and say, oh, this is terrible, we wish Babylon was still around, they rejoice at the fall of Babylon because the day of judgment has come and because the kingdom of God is coming. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, and you apostles, and you prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Osborne says this, while those who participated in the sins of Babylon mourn, Those who were faithful to God rejoice that the name of God has triumphed and his people have been vindicated. One last section in chapter 18, verse 21 to 24. uh, There's an angel that announces Babylon's fall. And there's this business about a millstone. And that should sound familiar to you. Because Jeremiah did something similar as a prophetic act. And Jesus used the very same image in talking about judgment. For people in the Gospels. So there's a story back in Jeremiah 51. Where he takes a rock and he throws it into the Euphrates. And when Jeremiah did it. His point was Babylon you're going to sink like a rock. You're going to go down just like this rock. The actual historical Babylon. Uh, When Jesus talked about it in in, uh, the Gospels. It was a warning about leading little ones to sin. And he said it would be better if you had a millstone. Hung around your neck. And tossed in the sea that you would lead these little ones astray. That's part of the problem with Babylon. Is that Babylon seduces all of these people to come along in its idolatry. And it bears responsibility for that. And there's there's the same image. One last thought. The angel describes a punishment for Babylon that fits the crimes of Babylon. The punishment fits the crimes. So... I know you're not supposed to say this when you talk about the Bible in church or when you read the Bible in church. But I'm guessing as we read chapter 18 and some of the lists and the repetition, I bet there was a point in the reading it where you're like, I get it. I get it. He's, he's destroying the whole thing. The whole economy's going down. Everything is being destroyed. Nothing. I get it. Do you need to list out all of these little individual things? But you need to understand how important chapter 18 is in making this point that the punishment fit the crime. Okay, Go with me, if you can, in your mind, all the way back to the beginning of the book. Remember the letters to the churches? And remember, some of those churches were facing pressure in the trade guilds, in their community. Hey, if you don't go along with this... Offering sacrifices, if you don't pinch the incense to Caesar, if you don't come get drunk and participate in this nonsense with the guild, we're not going to do business with you. You're going to be economically cut off from the community. That's one of Babylon's tricks, is to manipulate people and to control people or to seduce people via money or economic pressure. The people of God had suffered for that. And so when God comes in judgment against Babylon, the whole economy goes down. The whole socioeconomic system is tanked. And the detail in this is saying to you, God was paying attention all those times when his people were pressured and backed into a corner or threatened or seduced or lured or tempted. God saw all of that and he's bringing it all to account and destroying the whole thing. The punishment fits the crime. Now, that's 17 and 18. Let me give you some thoughts of conclusion here. 17 and 18 present the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb is absolutely sovereign over the salvation of God's people, number one. And the judgment of God's enemies, number two. He's in control of both of those things. Salvation and judgment. His sovereignty is not limited in either of those areas. So let's just talk about each one of those in turn. First, salvation. God writes, we read in this chapter 17, God writes the names of His people in a book of life. And we've read about it in 13, we'll read it again in 20. You read it here in 17. He writes their names in the book before the foundation of the world. That's the very same language Paul uses in the book of Ephesians when he talks about the Father's role in salvation and the Son's role in salvation and the Spirit's role in salvation, he says the Father called you, He elected you, He chose you in Jesus before the foundation of the world. It wasn't based on you being here, it was based on God making that decision. So God is sovereign in the salvation of His people and you see that when He writes their names in this book. And everyone whose name is not written in the book goes along with the beast and the Babylon and all the mess. And those whose names are written in the book are set apart. God's sovereign in the salvation of His people. So we're not going to go into a big dig in on this. But I'm just saying to you, that's the doctrine of election in the Bible. And people take the doctrine of election, they hate it, they twist it, they come up with all sorts of crazy things to explain it away. And sometimes people say... Well, if God's just going to choose who gets saved, we don't need to go on any mission trips because he's just going to choose them. And we don't have anything to do with that. And sometimes people say, well, God's just going to choose in the end. So I guess it doesn't matter what kind of response we make. We can just do whatever we want to do. It doesn't matter. God's just up there pulling strings like a puppet master. And people say these crazy things, but that's not how election works in the Bible. And it's not how it works in Revelation chapter 17. So look at this. This is, this is important. Look at Revelation 17. Verse 8 says, The beast you saw was and was not, and was about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they'll marvel to see the beast because it was And it was not. And then there's all the stuff we can argue and debate about. But jump down and look below at verse 14. It says they're going to make war on the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them. For he's the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him. The people who are with the lamb. They're called. And they're chosen. And they're faithful. All three. So you can't jump up there to the right, their names in the book stuff, and say, well, God's just going to choose. So it doesn't matter if we share the gospel with anybody, and it doesn't matter how anybody lives their life, because God's just going to choose, and none of this other stuff matters. No, they're called. They were called to salvation, and that call to salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. So they heard the gospel, and they responded to it, and they're faithful, They're not just living their lives like everyone else in Babylon, saying, well, it doesn't matter how we live because my name's written in the book. That's not how election works in the Bible. God made the choice. He wrote their names. He chose these people. And through the preaching of the gospel, He called them. And through the work of the Spirit in their life, He's sanctifying them, and they're faithful. All of those things are true, and God's sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over the salvation of His people. And then secondly... He's sovereign in judgment. He moves the hearts of his enemies to fulfill his very words. I don't know how much stronger statement of God's sovereignty you could come up with than what you read in Revelation 17, 17. Remember that business about evil turns in on itself and the dragon and the beast and the kings, they all sort of disintegrate and and it all falls apart. Why did that happen? Well, verse 17, God put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose. God put it in the hearts of his enemies to bring about their own destruction. There's no more clear thing that you could say that God is sovereign in the salvation of his people and he's sovereign in the destruction of his enemies. He's sovereign over all of it. So I gave you three quotes. Osborne, he says it's the incredible sovereignty of God. Uh, Derek Thomas, the truth that God is all-powerful and sovereign. Uh, Michael Gorman talks about God and the Lamb. These are, are their reserved powers, working in salvation and working in judgment. God is sovereign over all of it. Uh, Gareth, I'm going to skip that next slide just because of time. We don't have time to, to get into that. Um, let me give you the next point of application. God calls his people to live lives of holiness even as they live in Babylon. So the, now we're back to chapter 18 in this business about God calling his people to come out. Verse 4. Come out of her. Not necessarily a change in geography, but a call to holiness. So you understand our Amish friends think that geography and clothes and technology is how you come out. like that. You understand that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, we don't want to be worldly. We don't want to get mixed up in Babylon. So we are going to move away and live all by ourselves. We don't even want to share the same real estate with you on any level. We don't want to use the same technology. We, want, we don't want to be entangled in all of this mess. Uh, this is not a new strategy. In Jesus' day, there was a group of people named the Essenes, and they chose to live out in caves in the Judean wilderness. And they thought, if we go out there, away from Jerusalem, and all the filth and the mess and the junk going on in that city, then we'll be really, really good holy people. Most Bible scholars think that it was the Essenes who raised John the Baptist, that he grew up out in one of these communities, out in the wilderness. He talked like them. He dressed like them. Remember, his parents were old when he was born, so the assumption is that maybe they died and these people were known to adopt kids and they adopted him out. That's speculation. But the idea in the Essenes is get out into the wilderness and we'll get away from all the mess in the world. Um, I wish that getting away from sin was as easy as moving to a new zip code. The problem is when you move to a new zip code, your heart goes with you. And all the junk in your heart goes with you. And life may look different in an Amish community, but there's still sin in those communities. It may not be the exact same sins we are bombarded with, but sin is a reality there. And the same is true for the Essenes. Um, Guthrie says, we live in Babylon, it's ubiquitous, and it's everywhere. Keener says, God warns his people to come out of Babylon. It's a call to holiness. It's not simply a matter of avoiding certain kinds of activities, but it's separation from the world and to God. And maybe you just, you don't need a Bible commentator. Maybe you just need John who wrote Revelation, who also wrote 1 John. I think he explains it pretty well when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's what this call to come out of Babylon is. Do not live your life wrapped up in all the junk that the world is enamored with. You have to come out of that. You have to be different. You have to be holy people. That's 1 Peter. The God who calls you is holy. So you need to be holy in all your conduct. He's called you out of that junk, out of that mess. That's what John's describing in 1 John 2. So what I just said to you, I want you to think about this. What I just said to you is you can't just physically separate yourself from Babylon and check that box and think it's all good. It's not that simple. It's actually a call to personal holiness. Now, here's the follow-up to that. We should be aware of ways we actively participate in the sins of Babylon. You need to be aware of this. And you understand when I say be aware of it, I don't mean like you can tell me about it, but I mean you see it and you don't like it and you're trying to deal with it in your life. You need to be aware of these things. So I love this quote from Poitras. I think his book on Revelation is one of the best I've read. Satan attacks the saints in two main ways. The beast attacks with power and persecution, endeavoring to destroy the witness of the saints and force them to worship the beast. Babylon attacks with seduction endeavoring to destroy the purity of the saints. How many times have you heard people say, thank goodness in the United States we are not persecuted like they are in China. Thank goodness in the United States we're not persecuted like they are in North Korea. Oh, those, those, they have it really rough. It's really hard to be a Christian in those places. And the implication in those statements is, it's so easy to be a Christian in the United States. And we may not deal with as much of the first beast, the heavy-handedness, the just oppressive, crushing force of government and power and politics, but we have all we can handle of the seduction part. You're just bombarded with it every day, everywhere you go, every song you hear, every TV show you watch, nonstop. Now, here's the great irony for Christians in the United States. What Christians in the United States really want to talk about Okay, And you might be a little disappointed that we haven't talked about this more tonight. What they really want to talk about is the beast. And they really want to talk about how the beast works in terms of force and the mark of the beast. And Americans get obsessed with this kind of stuff. Are they going to make us take a microchip? Are they going to make us take a shot? Are they going to make me get a barcode on my wrist? Are they going to make put a tattoo right in between my eyes on my forehead and all that stuff is so blatant and obvious and we just get people get crazy about it they get absolutely nuts about these things and in doing that they're focusing on you know what sometimes the beast does attack with power and persecution there's no doubt about that that's one of his tactics but here's another tactic seduction and trying to destroy the purity of the saints You remember the story of, let me just go on one rabbit trail. You remember the story uh, in the book of Numbers when the people of Israel had come out and Balak, a king, hired a magician named Balaam to curse the people? Remember that story and the donkey? That's the talking donkey and all that business. And he's going to pay him all this money and he takes him up on this hill. They kill all these animals. He says, okay, curse the people. And God takes control of his mouth and he blesses the people. And then they try to do it again, and he blesses the people. And they try to do it again, and they bless the people. And it's this weird thing of this king is trying to just bring some direct curse that will destroy them, and God doesn't let it happen. And you say, wow, God is powerful, and he talked through this this magician. He didn't even understand what he was saying, and he blessed the people. What a cool story. Do you remember what happened after that? Balaam came in the back door with women and seduced the people into idolatry. Very same guy. It wasn't a direct frontal attack. It wasn't a, hey, I'm going to tattoo you on your forehead. I'm going to implant you with a microchip. It wasn't that direct in your face pressure. They tried that and God stopped it. But then the people fell for the temptation and the seduction. That's the same thing being described here. So when you think, man, Sure is a good thing we don't have to face all those pressures they face in North Korea. Well, I agree with you to a point. But you understand there's plenty of pressures here and you should not be blind to them. Because if you don't see them at all in the danger of this seduction and getting wrapped up in Babylon and the prosperity and the system and the game and all the stuff, then you'll get swept away. You'll be completely swept away. So we should be aware of the ways we actively Participate in the sins of Babylon. Keener says this. The issue in 1718 is not that Rome is uh, simply that Rome is an evil empire. The issue that uh, its privileged position in international trade made it a prime exporter of immorality. And I don't know if you've traveled overseas and witnessed how American culture influences people around the world. We are the prime exporter of immorality. It's us. Uh, Go to Kenya. Go to Western Europe. Go to South America. Go to China. We're the exporters of immorality. Not the heavy-handed, back you into a corner, tattoo your forehead stuff. Just the seductive part about come along with us. Be part of this. It's fun. It's great. It's wonderful. It'll make you happy. It's the best. That's us. And we shouldn't be blind to that. So look, when you read this stuff about Babylon, you can read about this beast and you can say, North Korea has beastly aspects, and it does. China has beastly aspects, and it does. But guess what? The United States, same thing. It's a different manifestation, different way that it plays out, but we're in the exact same boat. Don't think we've gotten a pass on any of this. Uh, last truth, the people of God are called to rejoice, which means worship with joy at the judgment of Babylon and the hope of the kingdom of God. I think for most American Christians, that's a weird thought. That we would worship with joy when God destroys His enemies. But you remember way back in chapter 6, the saints in heaven are praying, and they're talking to God, and they're in this interadvental period, and they say, how long until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer to those saints is just a little while longer, and he's going to do it. They long for it. They want it. They're praying for it. And when it comes, the people of God respond in worship for what God has done in judgment. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. That's the segue to chapter 19, the heading in in my Bible over chapter 19 is rejoicing in heaven. And it's rejoicing at the destruction of the woman and the beasts and Babylon and those who dwell on the earth and all of God's enemies. So if you want homework for next month, you can do two things. You can read Revelation 19 and you can get on whatever music app you use and you can listen to Handel's Messiah the symphony, the oratorio that goes through Revelation 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and talks about these things that we're going we're gonna to wrap up next, next month. So I'm going to pray, and uh, you guys can get out of here. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful for these promises of uh, judgment and justice and vindication for your people and against your enemies. And God, we're thankful for your sovereignty in our salvation and in the judgment of evil on this earth. Uh, We're grateful for your grace in our lives, and we long for things to be set right. Uh, And we're thankful for this part of the Bible that promises us that a day of reckoning and judgment is coming. And Lord, there's a million details in these chapters that are hard for us to understand uh, and to make sense of. And we want to understand them. We want to make sense of them, but we want to see the big picture of your sovereignty and your grace in the lives of your people and your your justice uh, as it will be poured out on your enemies. And Lord, we want to be aware of the temptations we face in our own context, uh, the seduction and the allure to be part of Babylon and all of her sins. And Lord, we pray that these warnings would... Uh, would scare the Babylon out of us, and that we would have hearts uh, that long to come out from Babylon and to be holy, and that you would use your word to bring these things about. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for these men. I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we have three more uh, Tuesday nights to study together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.